Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificial and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they all said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. A warning against idolatry. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, 
The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. So today's reading covers another portion of Exodus. If you were here in the last two weeks, we've been talking about the book of Exodus. We talked about Exodus chapter 6 and also Exodus 19. And we looked at the gospel as shown to us through what God does to Israel. If you were there, or maybe if you weren't, you may remember Israel was trapped inside of Egypt. Egypt had, uh, the, the rulers of Egypt had uh, moved past their experience with Joseph, and they had begun to, um, they had begun to oppress the Israelites in such a way as to put them into harsh slavery and bondage. And God had ordained this such that he would be able to proclaim his name to all the nations in Cana and the surrounding Mediterranean area, that God would be demonstrated as holy, righteous, and good, and choosing a people who had nothing uh, chooseworthy, if you will, and crafting and forming and shaping them into a people who he would give his law so that they would be a diamond among the black backdrop of the nations who had followed after other gods in order that Christ would be sent at the right time so that all eyes would be focused on Israel. Now, we know that Israel never lived up to God's expectations. We saw last week how God had desired to make of Israel a holy nation, a nation of priests. And we kind of looked at that as Israel's special call was to be a priest to all the nations, that she would by representing God's holiness to those nations, mediate God's presence among the nations, and also she would go in before Yahweh and, uh, like like Abraham prays for Sodom, that she would pray for and, and intercede on behalf of all the nations who've gone away from Yahweh, who've run away from him after the uh, dispersion at Babel. And so this is kind of the, the movement, the central arc of the Old Testament history is being is being shown in Exodus 6, and this idea that the gospel is in a small way alluded to, um, we see this rippling through all of what Christ has done and, and forming the church. We, we also looked at how Peter calls us to likewise be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So being, being a priest, many people, they hear that and they're like, oh, well, I get to be a king. They don't want to have anything to do with the priest aspect. They just want to have the money and, you know, we're king's kids. And perhaps you've heard that phrase where we, we, we wear nice clothes and 
were polished, but, but they don't want to do the interceding work of being a priest for their neighbors, for their family. And so God has called the church to be a community within a larger community that mediates the presence of God, and both as individuals and as a corporate witness, we intercede on those uh, on behalf of those who are far from Christ, and also bring a message of reconciliation to them. And so we we noted how at this moment, right before God gives the law to Israel, the thing by which she would be known as a distinct community that God has called and formed, before God gives the law, He begins to give Moses an understanding of his holiness, such that every time they they remember the law, every time that they look at the law, they would remember two things, that this was given to us by a God who is gracious and has brought us out of our bondage, and that two, this is given to us not arbitrarily, but rather it comes from the nature of a holy God who is to be feared and wondered at. And so we see the unfolding of the giving of the law through the rest of Exodus, and we're going to look at Exodus 24 today uh, in the context of Moses has just been given a copy of the law and is also now being uh, that covenant which God is establishing with his people is showing itself in true worship. So today we're going to look at the nature of worship, how it exists today, how we see it in Exodus 24 as a mini pattern. You can think of it as a diagram or a blueprint or a template by which we see the traces and outlines of true covenantal worship. And what I mean by true covenantal worship is that which we do in the church today, every Sunday, every time we meet together as a corporate body of Christians, we need to mirror and have these elements of our worship if it's to be in spirit and truth. Jesus in John 4 is talking to the woman at the well, and she's far from God. She has some questions about whether she should worship in Samaria or in Jerusalem. And Jesus says that there's a day coming, and it's close at hand, that you won't worship here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth, for the Father desires such as these to worship him. So so we, if we're going to be those people who Jesus calls to be worshipers in spirit and truth, we must worship according to the way that God has ordained. And we see that throughout all of the scriptures. One of those ways is here. But worship is intimately tied to how we live our lives as holy vessels who are set apart to God. Paul describes our worship not as songs, not even as the Eucharist, high as his vision is of communion, but as rendering your body as a pleasing sacrifice every moment of every day, that our body and our person would be acceptable to the Lord by the way that we carry our hearts and how we conduct ourselves. And so holy worship, understanding who God is, understanding how to do worship rightly, is always intimately tied to holy living in the scriptures. It's never divorced from it. And so we're going to see worship. Many many of us, when we think of worship, we just think of songs and lifting our hands and shouting. That is good, and that is a part of worship, but it is not the whole package. And we're going to see how worship is much more than just approaching God in His holiness. It also is uh, folded into that. It's also communing with Him and hearing from Him and submitting ourselves to His teaching and being anointed by or sprinkled with his blood, as it were, as we're going to see in this passage. 
So holy living and covenantal worship are always intimately tied. And because we know that holiness is required, Hebrews says, there is a holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. Because we know that holiness is required, we must understand the importance of covenantal worship as a community of believers together and how it relates to the gospel. So that's a big goal. Hopefully you're ready. I'm ready. Hopefully you're ready. We're going to we're going to cover a lot of uh, a lot of these aspects of covenantal worship and we're only going to touch on them uh, one or two verses in this passage and then we're going to talk about Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians 10. So with that in mind, we're going to look at God's beckoning as the beginning point of worship that God calls Moses and his uh, companions up to himself. We are not attempting as Christians to form some sort of religion by which we offer up a pleasing aroma to God that he has not required. And so God's beckoning is always the beginning of worship. The reading of the book, that is the reading of scripture, the sprinkling of the blood, which we understand to be a picture of what's going to happen through the true atoning work of Jesus Christ, beholding God face to face, as it were, this wonderful, beautiful encounter that Moses and his fellows experience with God on the mountain. We're going to look at the communion that they have in eating and drinking, that this God is not simply an abstract God full of terror, full of wonder, filled with uh, his throne being surrounded by smoke, lightning, voices, shouts, tremblings of, of the earth, but rather also he desires in love to share himself with his people as the kind of culmination of worship. And then finally, we're going to get back to Paul's warnings against idolatry as connected to this exact passage. It is the main arc of this sermon is it's not enough, although it's important to get covenantal worship right, if you merely are tangentially or just kind of beating around the bush, if you're not getting to the heart of true worship, but you have all the forms of true worship, then you're really not entering into true worship itself. And so the the warning against idolatry Paul gives is in the context of this exact chapter, as well as uh, Exodus 26. Um, so let's let's look at this. God calls Moses to bring the priests and the elders up with him to worship the Lord. If you've been at our church during Transfiguration Sunday, you may remember Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain on which he desires, because he knows the heart of the Father, to manifest his glory along with Elijah and Moses. And there is a testimony concerning the glory of Jesus Christ. It says that he was made as white like wool. We see the echo of that future event here in this chapter. God beckons to Moses. He calls to Moses and tells him to bring up Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And so there's this pattern by which God is bringing about uh, an encounter with himself such that he would demonstrate his glory to this guy, Moses, who he's calling to lead his people. Verse 1 of Exodus 24, come up to the Lord. This, if you remember this, whenever we see Lord in, in small caps, capital L-O-R-D, it means Yahweh. It means the one who is, the great I am. Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. So 70 always in the scriptures is a representative sample of either people or nations. We see in Daniel that there are 70 weeks, 70 nations. We see in Luke 11 that Jesus sends out 70 people, 70 of his disciples to go into all of Israel, all of the land. And 
And so this 70 is a representative sample of Israel. Israel appoints and chooses elders, which Jethro had commanded them to do. These people represent the nation, and they come and stand before God in their place. So this is where we, we understand the idea of federal representation, or, or if you want to talk about it in political terms, uh, a representative democracy. That is, there's someone here who's representing a group of people. And so God is calling the nation to appear before him. And then he says, the elders aren't to come up, but rather just Moses all is going to come all the way up. And then Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron, they're going to stay kind of below. And so there's a, there's a way that they must approach Yahweh. We cannot approach God in presumption. This is the echo of this pattern of worship, is we do not come to worship. Sunday is not an invention of the church apart from the call of God. God calls us to worship him. He calls us to gather together. We don't approach God in our own way. This relates both how we worship and also how we live. We don't just kind of live as we're as if we're our own masters. Paul says we've been bought with a price, and so we live in response to God's beckoning. That's why it's so important for you as a believer to be saturated with the word. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, how do you know what his word is? How can you keep it if you don't know, if you've never read it? If you you can't abide in God's word in a theoretical sense, you need to spend time living in and surrounding yourself with the word of God. And so Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, they're going up in response to God's commissioning. This is the beginning aspect of covenant worship. We gather because the Holy Spirit we gather on Sunday mornings because the Holy Spirit draws us together to be a temple, both individually and corporately, that he would be pleased to dwell in. And so our response to the revelation of Jesus Christ is a necessary one, and we must not refuse him. We saw that last week. We must not refuse, as Hebrews uh, 12, I think it was, says, we must not ref refuse him who is speaking. That is, Jesus Christ is calling us to be a group of people who respond to his call to be holy as he is holy. And so before we can understand the importance of the reading of God's word, we must absolutely know what it is that we mean by the phrase God's word. We don't at all mean that it's some word that we have elevated to the status of holy. We rather understand that this is a word which was given from someone who is holy. Jesus in his disputes with the Pharisees is talking about their duplicity of heart. And he says, what's holy, the gold or the temple? They, they, you know, they, you, they swear by the temple, but they won't swear by the gold of the temple. And so they demonstrate that they have no understanding. It's, it's certainly not the gold which makes the temple holy, but rather the presence of God in the temple. And so if we don't take the scriptures and elevate them to something that they're not, it's not as if the necessity of scripture is an invention of us but rather it's something that we understand to be from God. Let's look at how this shows up in this passage. Exodus 24, the first part of verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Yahweh speaks to Moses, and Moses writes it down. Moses is not crafting a narrative. Moses is not examining the other epics and, and morals and myths of all the other nations and comparing and contrasting and saying, you know, adding liturgical or uh, literary flourishes. Moses is writing down the very words of God. 
And these are the words which are about to show up as being recited to the people, reread or retold to the people. These are not the words of Moses. So many people, when they uh, object to uh, the the law having any importance or any use for, for Christians today, Paul says it's our tutor. They say it's meaningless. And they say, well, that's not God's law because it's called the law of Moses, right? And maybe you've heard that objection. Hopefully, you've... Uh, lovingly uh, rebuked with a nice quick love tap to the face uh, because it is not the law of Moses. Verse four, Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. And so this is a holy word, which is given to us from God. It's not Moses's opinion. It's not even, it's not, although this would probably be okay, it's not even Moses's recollection or his interpretation of these feelings of these events. It's not as if Moses describes just his take on the encounter on the mountain. And we know this to be the case. In writing the covenant, he's not writing down his own opinions, but rather was aided by the Holy Spirit in faithfully recording that which God wished to be communicated. Now, that does not mean that Yahweh is literally by the Holy Spirit whispering in Moses's ear, Yah, bot. (laughs) He's not going letter by letter here. And, and even if he did, that wouldn't be a problem, but that's not the sense that we understand from the scripture. Moses is writing it down in accordance with his experience, and that experience was faithfully crafted by God. That's actually a much more beautiful and sovereign understanding of the plenary, or that is the Holy Spirit-inspired uh, nature of scripture than if the Holy Spirit just whispered into his uh, ear each word. Um, This is attested to by Peter in his second epistle. He says explicitly, verse uh, 19 through 21 of chapter 1, 2 Peter, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter's saying that there were these prophecies given of old that testified of Christ and concerned righteousness and how it was that Israel was to live. And now that we're here after Christ has come, been born, lived, witnessed, Uh, did a mission, died, rose from the dead, established a church, and sent his Holy Spirit. Now that all this has come to pass, Peter says, we've got these words more confirmed. Most Most of what was promised has come. He says, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. He's giving a metaphor or a picture of the world and nature, reality, if you will, as itself. That is, the word of God the prophecies which have been confirmed, the testimony of the church concerning Jesus to be the Messiah, is the lamp in a dark place. We're maybe all familiar with David saying, your word is a lamp to my feet. And Peter is saying, amen. This is the confirmation of the prophecies. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's an allusion to Jesus Christ called the morning star. And so the morning star rising in your hearts is Peter's uh literary way, his poetic way of saying that Jesus Christ becomes the shining center of all that is in your heart. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of scripture, any of the minor prophets, any of the Pentateuch, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, no element of scripture comes from someone's interpretation. It is not their recording of the events in their own interpretation, according to their own moral code, 
but rather it has been faithfully given to them by God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Have you ever tried to prophesy maybe in a meeting? Have you ever got it wrong? We know that prophecy in the New Testament is slightly different than the school of the prophets and those who were having the office of the prophets. Although I believe, and I think the scriptures would confirm that the office of the prophets still exists in the New Testament. Nevertheless, uh, it's not the case that you prophesy completely. Paul says we prophesy in part. But here he's talking about a different type of prophecy, the prophecy that is according to Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He's not saying that you can't actually just stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and then, you know, some ridiculous thing. He's not talking about those sorts of prophecies. He's talking about prophecy concerning Scripture. It was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the core doctrine of, of the importance of the Scripture. That is, it is a faithful rendering of the Holy Spirit's message, which he wishes to convey to his people. And this is the second aspect that we see in worship. Moses, after organizing a bunch of sacrifices, setting up, getting everything ready for this event, he then takes what he's written down, and he gathers the people, and he speaks to them. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. This is why we read scripture week by week. Ezra chapter 8, it has the exact same thing. That as It says that Ezra, as he's establishing the, ba- the boundary walls of Jerusalem, he sets people in groups and then has the reading of the law, and then he, he appoints elders to describe the law so as to give the sense of its meaning. That is the basis and foundation for all expository preaching. All sermons come from this pattern. It's not something that we've invented. And so Moses gives a reading of the book of the covenant. Now, if you've ever thought to yourself that, oh, this reading's going a little bit long today, just imagine what this event was like. Now, I personally would love if everybody would be willing to get together and let's just go for it. But that being said, how much more is it worth doing every week? when we come to reconfirm our covenant with the Lord. So we know that God desires us to have a heart to do his law. Over and over again, the psalmists, they're asking, Lord, incline my heart. But the people respond in in their own flesh. They respond quickly rather than considering and reflecting on the nature of the words. It's not in my opinion that Moses even asked the people to respond at this point, but rather they kind of just offer up this commentary on the law that they've just heard. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do, and we will be obedient. This sounds a lot like Peter saying, I will never deny you. Even if all others fall away, I will stay true to you. This is not going to go well. But they lean on their own strength instead of petitioning for hearts to keep his law. But we know that it is right to want to do the word which we hear. Jesus over and over again says, don't be doers of the uh, hearers of the word alone, but doers. So we know that we should respond to the reading of the word with a heart that is inclined to obey, but it's necessary that we ask the Lord for that heart. We can't just assume that after hearing God's word declared that it's in our power to respond to it. We need the Lord to change us. And so Moses continues on with this pattern of worship. After he sprinkles the altar 
I want you to kind of close your eyes for a second and imagine that Moses has this big bowl of blood. If you've never seen a big bowl of blood, it looks like maybe dark red Hawaiian punch. If you, if you don't have that, it's a, it, this is a gruesome, I mean, it's, it's gross kind of, um, he takes this blood, he, he dips it, uh, probably with a branch of a, of a tree or something like that, or maybe with his hands. And he then throws it against the altar and then he does something and then he takes it and throws it against the people, thus connecting the people to the altar. Moses sprinkles the exact same blood, uniting them to that altar, the place which God would be worshipped and their sins would be atoned for. This is very, very important for our, un- for our understanding of what Christ has done and how we relate to Christ's work by faith. Many people understand that we must respond to the work of Christ by faith, but how do we respond to it? How, do- how does that work? How does it actually, how does rubber meet road in that? Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. We approach salvation so wishy-washy. If you would be willing to accept Jesus, he would forgive you, right? We say these these kind of like man response is necessary. Yes, it's true that you must respond to the gospel, but it, it doesn't originate with you. Here, the Lord is making covenant with these people. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This still happens today in that we by faith are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, not externally on our persons, not in an altar which had to be redone year after year, but rather a sacrifice which was once for all on the cross that Jesus not only offered up his own blood, but he also, not only was he the offering, but also the priest it says in the book of Hebrews that by the Holy Spirit, he entered through the flesh, through the veil of his body, and entered into the true temple and offered up him his own blood. And so we understand that this offering of his blood must be applied to our hearts. The scriptures plainly teach, Hebrews 10, 21 through 22, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what it means for Moses to take the blood and to throw it upon the people, uniting them to this sacrifice, which would only temporarily put off sins for a little bit. Jesus Christ has once and for all taken care of our sins. And now by faith, our hearts are applied to our hearts is applied the blood of Christ. This is what, happens when we week after week, day after day, whether we hear the gospel preached to us or we ourselves in reading the Holy, uh, the Holy Scriptures and applying them by faith, preach the gospel to ourselves. Upon hearing the gospel and believing this is true, we are anointed, we are sprinkled, we are washed with the blood of Jesus. That's what it means for the blood of Jesus to be effective for you. It means to, by faith, allow that sprinkling to take place, that washing, that that atoning to take place. And so we here are united with Jesus Christ. This is what it means to truly and and fully worship in faith. It means to understand your union with Jesus Christ as a spiritual reality by which his sacrifice becomes effective for you. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you do. It's not a covenant that you make with the Lord, but rather a covenant that God has made with his people. It says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself 
through Jesus Christ, whom he put forth to be a propitiation, something that would make two people who are apart come near. This is what's happened. This is what we remember every week in church, in true covenant worship. So after this, Moses and the priests, along with the elders, go up to behold God. And they come and they see him face to face. And this is exactly what we have going on today. Then Moses, verse 9, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Look at that. They did exactly what God asked. Amazing. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, I want you to understand this is why this is why uh, Jesus was killed. Uh, this is why the church will, can never theologically be compatible with Judaism, because when what we are about to say is equating Jesus, that is Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to Yahweh himself. It says, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu went up with the 70 elders, and they beheld God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire. Have you ever seen a sapphire? Usually they're red, sometimes they're, they're blue. But they're, it's a gemstone, which is very clear. You can see through it. It's not like a diamond, which is uh, very, very clear, although most of them are small. Sapphires are usually a little bit larger, but they're filled with this kind of like red and orange and sometimes pink swirling in them. Now, nice sapphires that you buy at a gem store, you, you get them because of their purity. But most often, sapphires have this kind of swirl. It kind of looks like if you've ever seen a fire coming out of a furnace, how it sort of whips up and, and leaps, uh, laps up the oxygen that's around it. This sapphire, which is underneath the feet of this one who is seated in the heavens, is described to be clear, as is, as is the heavens for its clearness. This is a vision of what we see later in Revelation 4, that there is a sea of glass like crystal mixed with fire underneath the throne of Christ. And so Moses, which he's seeing this event take place along with the his uh, his fellows, and then the, the priests are probably too far to uh, too far away to see this. But he's taking a vision of God, one to one, face to face. There's no mediation here. These priests are beholding God, and then we know that this is a, a picture of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of the rest of Scripture. Over and over again, it says that those who are not pure in heart, they cannot see God. That's in the Beatitudes, if you, if you remember. The pure in heart will see God. Well, is Moses pure in heart? He's pretty good, but he sins at one point, and uh, he leads Israel pretty well. But at one point, he gets really angry when God didn't tell him to get angry. And because of that, he doesn't enter the promised land, but dies in the wilderness. So even Moses, one of the most righteous men in all of Scripture, gets it wrong. And so, do they see God? Yes, they see God because of God's revelation to him. But did he see the Father? No, not at all. The reason why is clear from the rest of the scriptures. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Now, is the scripture broken? I hope not. And I'm going to prove to you that it isn't broken. And the reason we know it's not broken is because we trust God and we trust his word. We have a commitment to the integrity of scripture, which informs how we understand and interpret it. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He is Jesus Christ, has made him that is the Father known. Jesus Christ is the only one who has beheld the Father 
And Jesus would later go on to teach, if you want to see the Father, you have to see me first. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus himself teaches in that very same gospel later in John 6, verse 45 and 46, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Jesus is saying all these people who are not receiving me, they have no relationship with the Father. They've never learned from him. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, that is himself. He has seen the Father. So what does that mean? That means that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are having this encounter with God by which they see the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the eternal Word who existed even before his birth. This is the one who they are beholding. And we see this week by week through the faithful preaching and exposition of God's Word to see the Word of God. That is, the scriptures themselves, we we know and, and would affirm clearly, they are not Jesus Christ. Although they are the Word of God, they are not God the Word or God the Logos, as in John 1. And so we, too, are offered this example. In Revelation 1, we see the beginning of the chapter titles of Revelation, or the book title, is a revelation not of the end times, not a revelation of the nuclear apocalypse as all nations surround Israel. No, we see a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Moses and these other fellows are experiencing. They are seeing Jesus Christ, just like Ezekiel 1, which hopefully we'll look at in a few weeks. But this is the pattern of worship, that people would come and they would be atoned for, that they would hear the word of God, and that they would behold Jesus Christ in a faithful way. Now, at this time, only Moses and a few other people are ready to receive this vision, but here it's been made plain for all of us. This is our duty as believers to look upon Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, it says that the light of the glory of God we have seen in the face of Christ. This is what it means for us to behold by faith Jesus week by week. Finally, the last element of worship after seeing and meeting with God is an eating and drinking. This holy God who we see as awesome, fearful, and tremble then invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the other elders to eat and drink with him. God is holy, but even saying that God is holy, we understand he is holy for a reason. He wants to have fellowship. And before you can have fellowship with God, you must be washed, you must be sprinkled, you must be called up. You can't approach apart from his calling. The fellowship that we see is a true communion of eating and drinking. It's not as if God just wants to terrify these people. That comes by the revelation of his glory alone. He wants to meet with them. And so he then offers a meal. Now, it's my opinion that God gave Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders meals, which were physical realities that were given to them by God, because it doesn't record, although this is just an inference, it doesn't record that they took something with them. And it's it's not really clear if they would have known to take anything with them. And so they eat a meal with the Lord. It's my opinion that that meal came from the Lord. Verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. That is, he didn't, he didn't judge them, although the sins of Israel, which they represented Right, right to his face. He didn't judge them, but rather, it says, they beheld God and ate and drank. Likewise, today, we're going to culminate our worship with the eating and drinking of 
Jesus's body and blood. And this is what we do week by week. Verse uh, 53 and verse 54 of John 6. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, this is a hard saying. And if you remember from John 6, people start leaving at this point because they are thinking naturally and they're really grossed out by this. What Eat flesh, drink blood. This sounds terrible. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, this must be beheld by faith. We cannot claim to understand how this truly works. And yet we know that Jesus calls us to partake of him. That's what we're doing at communion. We're partaking of Jesus Christ and eating with him, looking forward to the day where we will share a meal in the new Jerusalem. But this is true covenant worship. And at this point, Moses then goes up and is surrounded by a cloud of glory for 40 days in which he receives a fuller explanation of how the temple will be established, how the tabernacle will be made, and how God will ordain worship. But at this point, we need to look at what should happen if although we eat and drink, we do not actually stay near the Lord, but rather drift from him. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, referencing these exact same events, these exact same events. There's actually a quote in 1 Corinthians 10 that shows up right from uh, Exodus uh, chapter 31 or 32, I think. Uh, 32. It says that they, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does that mean? It means they, they were very slack or very lazy at holiness but they were really good at entertainment. They worked at their play and played at their work, if you will. And this isn't talking about a natural reality, but how they respond to God. And so these people who were near God, who ate of the manna from heaven, very similar to this meal that the elders had on the mountain, and yet they perished in the wilderness. So even though you may have acquired in today's message an understanding of the elements of true worship, if you don't have true worship going on in your heart, it doesn't mean that you're right with the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're right with God. You must tremble and fear as you carry out these things. And we're going to see what Paul means in these warnings. Verse 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. There's this idea that we sometimes have, well, Israel fell away because they were just like these hypocrites. Well, Paul's saying, whoa, hold on, don't, don't go with that train of thought just yet. They were all included in the covenant ceremonies, the covenant redemption that God executed for the nation. All of them were baptized into Moses, verse 2. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food, verse 4. All drank the same spiritual drink. And did that cause them to persevere? No. Verse 4 says plainly, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Though these people, through their corporate action, partook in some things that were about God and related to God, inside their heart, they were still far, far away from him. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. This is terrifying. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. One of the greatest tests, if there is any authentic work 
in your life is if you have a desire for holiness, if you have any desire to be nearer to the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that you have to have a perfect track record now. I'm saying, do you even want to be near the Lord? So many people are concerned with, am I going to heaven or hell? And a greater question is, do you even want to go to heaven? Everybody's happy there. Everybody is really holy there. Nobody wants anything but the Lord. And yet we have this understanding, well, it's just going to be better. It's just going to be bliss. Well, you've been offered that now. You've been offered fellowship with Christ now. So what? why would you think that once you get to heaven, you're going to be different? It's not just some magic switch which takes place, and then you're finally, you know, wanting the Lord. If you don't have any desire for him now, what makes you think that you'd even want to be in heaven? So here we must understand that these people who went under the cloud and through the sea, they did not survive the wilderness because their hearts were far from God. Now, this being said, repentance is a chief action of true worship. True worship real worship if they would have if Israel would have responded rightly to the reading of God's word they would have said lord we can't do this at all but rather give us a heart to do these things so by no means am i saying if today you feel far away from the lord that it's over rather paul gives these warnings and we faithfully remember and preach these warnings because there is a call from god to you today to respond to turn away from your evil desire and to seek after him. Verse 11 and 12, Now these things happened to them as an example, reiterating verse 6, But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, normally in my life, I, I can kind of gauge, am I near the Lord or am I kind of having a season that's a little bit away? And most of the time, when I have a good season, I usually respond with, I know I'm in an okay season, but I know that's not good. Because the fear of the Lord causes us to run to him, not from him. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Not fearing the Lord is fearing other things. It's running away from God. It's getting distracted with with other things that don't have anything to do with God. But rather, fearing the Lord means approaching him, knowing that he's a gracious God. When Moses encounters God's name in the later parts of Exodus, as the Lord passes by him, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful, full of everlasting kindness. This is our God, and this is a God who is holy, who calls us to himself, and we absolutely should take heed of the warnings. Just because the Israelites were all with Moses, just because they were all delivered from Egypt, doesn't mean that they actually approach God. It's your duty as a Christian to not only worship in good form, in true covenantal pattern, but also in truth in your heart. You must incline your heart to the Lord as you worship the Lord. The Israelites who perished in their evil desire are examples for us concerning the necessity of repentance. You can do the form, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, but if you do not in truth confess your sins before the Lord, ask for a clean heart, ask him to remake your life, then you are not progressing in holiness. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're commanded and called to make our calling and election sure, make every effort to confirm. That's what it means to faithfully pursue the Lord. 
we must take hold of the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that he calls us to be holy. This is our great and wonderful pursuit as Christians, as disciples. If you want to know Christ, he has promised manifold mercy. He's promised you that he would never leave you nor forsake you. He promised that he would send his spirit and his spirit would remind you in every moment. And even our warning that we read today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that God in every temptation will provide a way of escape. Everything. So don't ever say that you're being you know, drifted off into temptation and that God's abandoned you. The scripture is true. And by faith, you make war against your sin in those moments where you're fighting temptation. And then you lay hold of the promise God has provided and is providing a way of escape in this moment. And I can choose to follow after Jesus Christ. And that hopefully doesn't sound heretical to you. It's not a heresy for you to lay hold of the grace of God. And in the moment in the moment of war, in the moment of the heat of the battle, to choose volitionally having your will, having your heart conformed by the Holy Spirit after the Word of God. That is what your goal is in fighting for holiness. I'm convinced that our church is being called actually into a season of encounter with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God, and that he will not give it to us both individually and corporately unless we be radically committed to actually making him Lord, which is another way to express what real holiness is. Brothers and sisters, you are not just saved in order to go to heaven. You are saved to be transformed after the image of your maker and your redeemer. And he's called you to himself. And that is the most precious and wonderful place to be. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We ask you, God, that you would give us a wonderful sense of the precious promises that you've over and over told your people, and those people have written them down in the scriptures. God, we ask that you would give us a true living faith that would be eager to repent from sin, that we would throw away all that hinders us from encountering you. Lord, also those things which you expressly command us not to do, not just, Lord, to be near you, but also to be representing you well. God, we pray that you would form us into a people who not only are near you, but also are near you on the behalf of others, that we would pursue you and also intercede for those around us. God, I pray that you would grip us with the nature of the Holy Spirit, that he is crafting and, and moving and and working in us to bring about holiness. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a wonderful understanding of these things, knowing that you are a gracious and holy God. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful warnings, and I pray that we would all take heed. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.